I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Famously, it was through her letters that Mary, Queen of Scots, was condemned for treason. There was a mole leaking Mary's letters to Thomas Phillips, the acclaimed codebreaker of Sir Francis Walsingham, who worked for Elizabeth I, who deciphered a letter that contained evidence that made Mary appear guilty of treason. Historians have long known, in other words, that Mary, Queen of Scots, wrote letters in cipher, And they've also known, or at least speculated, that there were letters that she wrote that had been lost. But now, in what Dr John Guy has described as a literary and historical sensation, the most important new find on Mary Queen of Scots for a hundred years, three passionate cryptographers have found those letters and deciphered them. There are in total 57 letters, some 50,000 words, that they've discovered in the French archives in the National Library of France. They've cracked the code. They've deciphered them. They've transcribed them and they've translated them. And those three are Georges Lazry, Norbert Biermann and Santoshi Tomokio. Between them, they have done something that no historian has managed to do. You can read the details of their work in their article, which is open to all, in the journal Cryptology. But today, I'm going to speak to Georges Lazry about what they discovered, what it tells us about Mary, Queen of Scots, and how on earth they did it. Welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I am very, very excited to talk to you about this find, which has been described as the most important find of Mary, Queen of Scots for 100 years by none other than the eminent John Guy. So welcome. Thank you very much. I thought it might be interesting for people listening to know a bit about your background, because what's fascinating about the three of you who have deciphered these incredible letters, or done this incredible job of deciphering, I should say, is that none of you are historians of the period, but all of you have expertise or developed skills in working on this period and working on ciphers generally? Yeah, so it's a patient, basically. Each of us, we came to the field from various backgrounds, but more or less at the same time 10 years ago. And we knew each other over time because there are some forums and blogs in which people contribute and we read each other articles and so on. So, But I'm a computer scientist. I was educated in France. And I was very lucky to know French because that's the language uh, in which uh, Mary wrote her letters. 
And uh, I started to be interested in uh, historical cipher and especially cracking them. So for us, historical background is always fascinating. And I've been always interesting and reading a lot about history. But the immediate incentive is just intellectual puzzle. So you have a cipher in front of you. You have only graphical signs or numbers, and you just want to crack it for the fun. And when you crack it, it's exciting. And if you read something interesting in text, then it's even more exciting. So after playing a little bit uh, with some easy ciphers and not too interesting, then I started to attack more harder ciphers. And then I um, joined a research team in the University of Kassel, who was working on the subject, and I eventually published a couple of papers with them and did my PhD at Kassel. And the topic of this PhD is a very fun PhD, is how to break historical ciphers, new methods to break historical ciphers. And I'm not aware of any such PhD <laughs> on the record. And then I continue to work on additional cipher of various periods. I have broken cipher from the First World War, German cipher, military, and diplomatic ciphers from the Second World War, German cipher machine, cipher from uh, the Pope's, the Vatican, from the 16th to the 18th century. And even more recently, with two other colleagues, ciphers from the Nigerian civil war, the Biafra war, from 67 to 70. So it's really interesting because now I'm still interested in the computer part of the story, but the content is getting more and more uh, interesting. And in parallel, I'm working with an academic project, which is called the Decrypt Project, which is run by multiple universities in Europe, Uppsala in Munich, Siegen and Hungary, other places. And what we do, we systematically locate, digitize all the digital copies and transcribe and decipher documents that were written in cipher. So in many cases, next to the cipher copy, you will find a plain text copy. There is no need for expertise as a code breaker, but uh, whenever there is not yet any plain text, then this is where I come in and try to break them. So there is an endless stream of new cipher uh, document to break, and it's a lot of fun. Wow, that sounds amazing and utterly thrilling work, actually, to be doing this incredible code breaking. I'm talking clearly to a genius. And what is interesting is that this has brought you to do something that historians have not managed to do before. And one could say, despite the fact that you're not a historian, but actually perhaps it's because you're not a historian. Let's talk about how you discovered Mary Queen of Scots letters when you weren't even looking for them. So if I was an historian, then I will look at every possible folder and collection which has some relation to Mary Stuart, and I will go there. But the particular ones that where we found the letters had nothing to do with Mary Stuart. So if you look at the catalog, you will see interesting letters, some of them in cipher, some of them in plain text, some of them in Italian. And all of them are about Italian matters. And probably the archivist was confused because if you look at the folder, you have one letter in cipher that we have deciphered. And then you have one plain text letter, and then you have another in cipher, and then one plain text letter. So probably the archivist thought that the plain text is actually the copy of the ciphered letter. So if you are a Mary Queen of Scots scholar, that's the last place you will go to find documents. So, but because we do that in a systematic method, and we don't care a priori what's in there, we just want to collect those and break the cipher, then really by chance we stumble upon that really unique treasure. 
And it took us a while. It's not like you press a button and then you see all the text. It took us a while, but then I can tell a little bit more about the type of detective work that we did in order to understand who it was and when. Yes, I absolutely want you to talk us through that in some detail, but that gives the answer, I suppose, to why they haven't been discovered till now. It's where they were. But also, you mentioned there's a kind of catch-22 about them. Do you want to explain? Yes, exactly. So it's hard work. It's a lot of work to crack them. So the only incentive that you would have to crack them, if you're an historian, is actually to know what they're about. But if you don't know, so why bother? So only... If you are crazy, passionate stuff, folks like us, you would do what we do and just systematically break more or less everything that we found. Because every single word on them is in cipher. So there's nothing to give away the date, where they were written, to whom they were written. None of that is available to you unless you've broken the cipher. Exactly. All you see are graphical signs, many lines of them, very dense. They wanted to make the best use of their papers when they smuggled those letters. And you have no idea what they're about. And this can definitely explain why no one thought they could be from Mary Stuart. As it so happens, I've had a look at some cipher documents from this period, and I've thought about them in my head as a combination of alphabetic and monosyllabic. You've got much better terms for them. You call them homophonic and nomenclature. Can you explain what a 16th century cipher looks like for those who haven't had the joy of looking at one of these documents? Yeah, so the basic cipher, I'm not talking about those specific, I'm talking generally. The most basic cipher is a, what we call a simple substitution cipher. So for each letter of the alphabet, you will have a sign. So maybe the A could be a plus sign and the B would be a dash and so on. That could be Greek sign, there could be Arabic figures, there could be a zodiac symbol. But basically you will have one symbol per letter of the alphabet. But what happened is that if you write a text and you encipher it, you will find that the specific symbol that represents the E, the most frequent letter in alphabet, the alphabet will also be the most frequent symbol in your text. So Arabic scholar already in the 9th and the 10th century, they already developed that method, which is frequency analysis. Just look at the frequency of the symbol to break, and then you know that the most frequent symbol is going to be the E and so on, and it helps a lot to crack the cipher. So in the Renaissance, Italia, and also developers in Europe, they introduced the homophonic cipher. Homophonic means same sound. So basically, you have multiple signs that represent the same letter of the alphabet. And then you don't have one single sign that stands out in terms of its frequency in the text. So it's a little bit more secure. The second part is the nomenclature, which is basically a dictionary. It's a dictionary of additional symbols. Each symbol represents either a name, a place, a full word, the common words usually, and in our case, also parts of words. So the effect is that if you encipher something, it will be shorter because you don't have to spell it out every word separately. And also it will make codebreaker work a little harder. Yes, because if you're constantly spelling out, even if you've got multiple homophonic ciphers, the name Walsingham, for example, that will become apparent. Whereas if it's hidden in one cipher, that may not be so clear. Yeah, so Walsingham is actually a very puzzling example because he's the only major figure who hasn't have his own symbol. And I will tell that a little bit more, but it was one of the reasons we found out that they were from Mary Stuart. So all the other main protagonists have names, the Queen of England, the King of France, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester has one, uh, Huntington, the 
another of uh, Mary Stuart's enemy. All of them, they have the honor of having their own symbol, but Wasinger doesn't have his own symbol, which is very strange. Ah, and that turned out to be the chink in the armor. Yes, yes, exactly. Like what we call the smoking gun. <laughs> and given that you didn't even know the language that the letter was in when you began, can we talk about how you even began to crack it? Yeah, so historically, if I was a code breaker in the service of Francis Walsingham, I would do a pen and paper process. I would just try hypothesis. I would say, okay, let's just assume that this symbol is an E and this other symbol is an S and this other symbol is an N. And then I will start to see some fragment emerging. And this could be a process that could have taken many weeks and sometimes many months for the most difficult one. But I believe one of Wansigam code breakers, Thomas Philippes, was very talented. He was said to be able to break those ciphers in days instead of weeks. But usually it would take a lot of time. So what we do, basically, we do that with a computer. So we don't check all the possibilities because there are just too many possibilities. But this is a smart algorithm in which we test some changes in the key, we see if we can improve the key, improve in the sense that the decryption that you get has more resemblance to French. And then we try what we call hill climbing. We try to climb the hill until we get to top and the top is usually a much better decryption. So that's the computerized part. And it gives us the meaning of all the homophones, the symbol that represent letters of the alphabet. It's only about 30% of the story. So We have still uh, about 150 symbols that represent words and places. And many times those are the most interesting because if you read a letter, very long description of what happened with X and you don't know who X is, it's very frustrating. So that part sometimes is, is very interesting. And this is more like we two, two methods. One is linguistic analysis. You see some fragment, maybe a word. You see the first three letters and you see the last three letters and you say, okay, what could be in the middle? And then you do that test in other places when you have that symbol and you look what's before, what's after. And then after a while, you make some hypothesis and then you can reach some conclusion. What could that symbol mean? For other symbols like representing persons, you need contextual analysis. So you need, for example, there is a passage in which Mary mentions the upcoming arrival of K, her brother-in-law. So you need to find out first who were her brother-in-law and then... We know that she was married to deceased the Queen of France, and one of the brother-in-law was the current king, Henri III. And the only one that could match was the Duke of Anjou, who actually was a suitor of Elizabeth I and really came to England, actually. So a lot of cases you need to complete that for the historical context. And because we are not historians, we needed to learn, and we bought a couple of books, and we read a lot, and we become very familiar and very um, passionate about the story, actually. Yes, and actually the work you've done on the context and the content is very impressive. We'll come back to a lot of that detail in a second as well, but let's just talk a bit more about this deciphering. So the hill climbing, which is done on the computer, gives you an opportunity to recover many of the homophones. How long did that bit take? You press the button, after a second you have it. <laughs> wow, computers are amazing things. But then with other homophones, you've got things that have diacritics, you've got nulls, and in this one you found special symbols to indicate repetition or to deletion. Can you talk us through those? Yes, yeah, so in addition to homophones, which are for letter of the alphabet and then the dictionary, a nomenclature one, we have special symbols that were very common in ciphers of the time. For example, if you want to double a symbol or if you want to delete the previous symbol, and we have also what we call nulls, that symbols that just have no meaning and they are there to confuse the code breaker and you should ignore them, yes. 
And fascinatingly, in this one, although it's quite common from the 15th century onwards to use certain symbols for names, here you've got it also for prefixes and suffixes, parts of words, which is fascinating. Yes. So it was less common, but it was not uncommon at the time. Because again, if I'm a code breaker, I would look for patterns in the text that reflect patterns in the language. So in the language, you have words ending with I-O-N in English and in French as well. Then I'm going to look for that in the ciphertext. Okay, those three letters, I'm going to look for them. I'm going to look at what combination of three letters are most prevalent in the ciphertext, and then it will help me to test that. But if I have only one symbol to represent I-O-N, then this symbol is just like any other symbol, and the pattern is hidden. So this makes the cipher more secure. And so this bit of deciphering it was much more of a labor, trying things out, identifying them, using context, and all these various different tricks to try and make sense of what remained after the homophones had been made clear. Yes, exactly. It was not a serial process, like you first transcribe the document, then you crack, then you decipher. It was an iterative process. You decipher a little bit, you interpret a little bit, and then you have one more symbol identified, and then you understand a little better the letter and so on, and then you learn about the context. So it was an iterative process. And I think what was very useful is that we were the three of us working on those, and we have different perspectives because... Many times I was working on one letter and I would get totally stuck. And then I would get a completely different perspective from Norbert, for example, who is a pianist and an opera professor in Berlin. So he has studied ancient languages because of opera. And he has a special way to look at the language and patterns. And Satoshi is also bright and has some very imaginative and creative way to look at problems and find associations and solutions to those kind of problems. So it was a real teamwork and a very productive one. And I don't think that any of us alone, even if you discount the amount of work, just the fact that the ability to solve those riddles that you have in almost every sentence some issues with the language and interpretation. So I don't think that any of us alone could have done that work. I think that as historians, we could learn a lot from that approach. So at what point did you realise that these letters were written by Mary, Queen of Scots, or by someone very close to her? What gave that away? Yeah, so at first, as I mentioned, it was kind of intellectual puzzle, and it was very fun to break the code. But we were very curious about who wrote them. And very quickly, that was not in Italian, because in our software, we can just give the language as a parameter. So we tried Italian, and it gave us a nonsense Italian. And then we tried maybe Latin, because it's Italian Latin. So, But we also had some not very promising result. And after a while, we just tested French, the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in the French National Library. So there is a chance that it was in French. And then... When trying that software with French, we got those initial fragments that I mentioned before. So then it was clear to us that it's French. And then when we read a little bit more and we had longer fragments, we identified words in French that are clearly written by a woman. Ah, yes, of course, because the French language gives that away, helpfully. Exactly. She mentioned that she's occupied by something, so it's occupé. And in masculine form, it's one E at the end, and in feminine form, it's two E at the end. So it was very clear at some stage it was a woman. So it was already very intriguing because there are not so many women wrote ciphers. And then we saw the expression, ma liberté, my liberty. So it doesn't make sense for anyone to speak about their liberty if they are free. So we realized that probably this is someone in captivity. And then 
we saw mon fils, which is my son. So, so we have a woman writing in French in captivity and who has a son. So then we are not historian, but the name Mary Stuart clicked at that time. And they say, okay, this might be Mary Stuart. But it was too crazy. It was really uh, impossible. I mean, there is no way like uh, just three non-historians uh, having fun with ciphers would find material from Mary Stuart. So we consulted an historian and the historian was very familiar with the Pacific collection and basically they told us, you are just wasting your time. There is no way this is Mary Stuart. You should try working on other collection. This one is not interesting. So we were kind of baffled. Hmm. Okay, but let's look for other hypotheses. And then we continue to decipher. And then that was what we call the Eureka moment, when we saw the word Walsingham. Of course, Sir Francis Walsingham, the first secretary of Elizabeth I, and also her spymaster. And because we are very familiar with historical cipher, we know the name. Because eventually in the Babylon plot, which is about two years after the last letter in that specific collection that we decipher is very well known in which Francis Walsingham somehow maybe entrapped Mary and other co-conspirators to move on with the conspiracy. And one of her letters was intercepted and deciphered, and that was quite incriminating evidence, and that brought to downfall. So we were familiar with the name, so for it was bingo. I'm completely sure this is Mary Stewart, and it was very, very exciting. It's like Indiana Jones moment. That's how you feel when you find something, but there was a but. We need to check. Maybe those letters are known already. Because many times when we decipher something, we just type in the text in Google, and then we find out that this specific letter was already documented in the 30s by an Austrian scholar. So what's the big deal if you redecipher something which is known? Because, of course, for every letter in cipher, you will have the plain text copy that was written before enciphering, then you have the plain text copy that was written while deciphering. So many times you will find those. And we looked in archive, and then out of 57 letters, we found seven of them in the British Library, in the conspicuous places, actually. A couple of them in a Harleian collection, which contains the paper of Francis Walsingham, and a couple of more in the Cecil paper in Hatfield. So... First, it was a confirmation that those letters are really from Mary Stuart because uh, we can compare the cipher and the text. And also we later understood why we have those letters in archives. But the bottom line is that the other 50 letters are not available anywhere. And there have been many scholars trying to comb archive from their letters and they have done a very thorough job. So there is a high chance that if they existed, they would have been found in plain text. Well, I'm so glad you carried on despite the discouragement. And it's absolutely true that actually having the plain text letters of a few of them was so helpful, presumably, because you can compare your deciphered text, you can corroborate the authenticity of them and indeed of the plain text letters. And as we'll see, you can tell us something about how Mary was being betrayed. So to whom was Mary writing these letters? Almost all of the letters, except a couple, really a few, are written to Michel de Castelnau, Sieur de la, Mau- de la Mauvissière. He was the French ambassador in England between 1575 and 1585. The letters that we have are between 1578 to 1584. So it covers most of this period. The one that actually we found in British archives are from mid-83. And this is the time when Walsingham 
was actually able to recruit a mole in the French embassy and this mole gave him copy of everything that Castelnau sent or received, which includes the letter that he received from Mary Queen of Scots. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Aeroplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time. Can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. So John Bossy, whom you mentioned in your work, had wrote a book about that called Under the Mill Hill, about this mole. And he hypothesised at the time that perhaps there was a secret channel before 1583. So you've shown something very interesting about the timing in your discovery. Yes. So first, John Bossy actually wrote two books on the topic. And he had an innovative identification of the mole, because for centuries it was considered to be Shorel, 
And then he found out that it was another secretary, Laurent Ferron. And he understood that there were letters missing and he wrote that they are probably lost. And also we have letters that Castelnau wrote to the king, Henri III, Henri III. And in those letters, he mentioned like, the Queen of Scots have written to me in cipher A, B, and C. And you have the date. So you know that those letters existed, but no one knew where they are. That's brilliant. So it shows us that from 1578, at least onwards, we've got these cipher texts going from Mary. And how wonderful to have that confirmation that they knew there were lost letters and here you found them. Perhaps we could talk a bit about the whole process of sending out secret letters. Clearly, Mary is using cipher to try and keep her letters secret, but she's got to get the letters out somehow. And in, indeed. What were her channels of communication? Yeah, so it's a topic which she's mentioning very frequently in her letters. She's very much concerned about this channel because in parallel to that confidential channel, there was an official channel. So she could send and receive letters, but they were opened and read by Walsingham and, and some of them were even read in the Privy Council. So it was even more embarrassing for Mary, Queen of Scots, because even in those letters, she was talking about financial matters and her dowry affairs in France. So at one stage, she got very embarrassed opening her letters there. But in parallel, she had that confidential channel. And usually the letters were carried by trusted couriers that she was recruiting. And also all the time she was recruiting new couriers. Sometimes they were compromised in a way, so she had to change. Sometimes there was evidence of a gap. Sometimes she was not able to send or receive letters in cipher, but she was allowed to have visitors. And most of the time they were not fully checked or searched and she could smuggle in and out letters. One of them is the famous Francis Frockmorton of the Frockmorton plot in 1883, but there are others. She laments, doesn't she, in the letters you've deciphered, that there are people to whom she cannot write because she can't get ciphered letters to certain places. Yeah, so she was very, very careful to conceal even the existence of channels. So, for example, she would pass some information to Castelnau and she would ask him to talk to the Queen. And usually it was negative gossip against Robert Dudley and, and so on. And she would write, but please don't tell the queen this came from me. And sometimes, okay, if you need to tell someone, you could tell them that you received that information from this and this and this. And also she wrote to him uh, very specifically. She writes that she wouldn't write in the official letters that she know were open anything that she wouldn't mind even her worst enemy to be able to read. And we have a lot of examples of dissimulation and concealment. And she was very clever, by the way. She was really astute. And even there is a letter, I mean, we redeciphered it because it was already known. But in one of the letters, she write to Castelnau, he has a spy in the embassy. You should know that you have a spy in the embassy. This is one of the only letters that we have from Castelnau to her, in which he said, no, I don't have any spy. I have only three people. I handling my letters and I trust all of the, the three of them. And one of them was Laurent Ferron, that boss is singled out as the probable mole. So two interesting things there. One is that even the letters that you deciphered that had been previously known, the plain text omits some lines. So there are details that you're bringing even to those. The second is that the reputation of Mary, Queen of Scots has clearly been traduced because there's been this comparison of her to Elizabeth I. Elizabeth never put anything in writing. She was clearly astute. But actually, we've got these huge numbers of words, huge numbers of letters that Mary is not only having ciphered, but getting out in these various ways and deducing 
that there is a mole, even when Castle now himself cannot recognize that. So that's a very good corrective, I think. I think so. So first, I'm a historian, so I think John Guy uh, will have very uh, stronger ideas about that. But from my non-historian eyes, I can see that she's very intelligent, she's very astute, and she writes about Archibald Douglas, another character there. Don't trust him because he wants to make himself more trustworthy than it is. Another example that she's very astute and she detects the characters of the protagonist very well. In one of the letters, she thanks Castelno for mitigating the outburst of anger of the queen against her. And then she adds that after a while, the queen will cool down and think through a little bit and then uh, will not necessarily act upon this anger, but she will feel offended and she will claim there is no reason for the queen to be angry at me because all I want is good for her and so on. We know that's not the case, but she was very intelligent. And you can see also the French, the sentences, perfect French, very elaborate uh, language, not always easy to understand, but very elaborate. Mm, That's interesting too. And you've given us a flavour there of some of the things that she's talking about, that amazing insight into Elizabeth I's character, her bursts of anger. Give us a sense of some of the other things she's talking about. So there are plenty of topics. Okay, so just to give an idea, we have 50,000 words, 50 letters which are new, and it's a book. It's a nice book. And some of the letters are very long, by the way. So there are many details. We have counted about 120 characters. Most of them we can find in other sources. Some of them might be new to historian. And the topics are endless. So there are a couple of threads that are repeated throughout the letters, but you also have some specific letters which have events which are just specific to those letters. So one of the main threads is complaints about condition in captivity, that she's sick, she wants to have more freedom to have exercise outside. She wants sometimes physicians to be sent to her, but then when two British physicians are sent to her, she doesn't really trust them because they were sent probably by Walsingham, and one of them prescribed her to drink gold water, which was at the time uh, probably a common treatment, and she doesn't want to follow that prescription. So from time to time, she mentioned about going to the bath at Buxton, which were nearby, and she was allowed to go there. Interesting. So we don't fully understand the meaning, but she said something like, I'm going to the bath. Please don't reopen negotiation in the meantime. Something like that. So maybe it's a wrong interpretation, but it's a very colorful one. So this is one thread. The second thread is about endless negotiations in which she would be restored to as the King of Scotland in association with her son in return for waiving her rights to succession to the British throne. And they are mentioned many times, but in some of the letters, she clearly states that she thinks that they are not in good faith. And this is just in order to extract information from her or to gain time. And there are other sources that say exactly the same. One recurrent topic is are the negotiation between Queen Elizabeth and the Duke of Anjou, his, her brother-in-law, the brother of the King of France, for a potential wedding and spent for over four years. And it's mentioned many, many times because she's writing to the French ambassador and it was kind of a pet project for the French ambassador, that marriage treaty. So every time she writes to him, it's very positive and so on. But we know from other sources that he was not necessarily very positive about that marriage. And she warns Castelnau that it could have to do with the British trying to encourage uh, to have some enterprise in the Netherlands against the Spanish and to fight together with the Protestant Dutch. And maybe it's a scheme to split between Spain and France and to weaken her enemies. So... Eventually, the Duke of Anjou is badly defeated in 83, 
And she just said, okay, this is exactly what I was warning all along about. And it was just a scheme to divide between Spain and French. And she should never have been uh, tempted to do that. So this is one very recurrent topic. Another one is uh, venting against <laughs> Walsingham and Robert Dudley. So many, many letters she writes, you know, very negative things about both of them. And sometimes she'd give some advice to Castellot how to try to accommodate with Francis Walsingham, what could be making me softer. And, but she doesn't have too much hope that she can succeed. But with other officials and other Privy Council members, she actually proposed to Castellot to try to bribe them, to give them presents and some money or money to one of the wives of one of them. So that's also very interesting. Everything about Robert Dudley is really colorful and strong. And our other nemesis is uh, Bess of Hardwick, the woman of the host. And at the beginning, she's more or less okay, positive. But at the end, she hates her. And you can see that in the letter. So she gathers a lot of gossips on, against Robert Dudley. And we know that he married second wife behind the back of Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth was not happy because he was her favorite. And then uh, in one letter, Mary Stuart proposes to Castelnau that he should tell the Queen that's the case. and But don't tell the Queen it's coming from me, of course. That's so interesting because the picture that we have of the relationship between Bess and Mary is that, you know, they're doing needlework together and that they're quite close at the beginning. But we've got a very interesting story there about the breakdown of that relationship. Yeah, so the six years are towards the end of the time she was in Sheffield or other properties of Shrewsbury. And then we can see that at that time, uh, they were not good friends anymore. And I was also really touched by the information we have in here about her motherhood, her concern when she hears her son has been abducted. Yes. So I think this is one of the most striking letters for me, because if you read between the lines, even when she expresses emotions, it's for a purpose. It's usually she wants to get the right to have more exercise. She wants to encourage Castellot to go and plead for her uh, on her behalf with the queen and so on. But when you see the reaction when her son is abducted in 82 by a pro-British faction, there is real distress. And of course, the purpose is to get help from France, but you can read this is a real distress. She's in despair. She doesn't know what to do. At that time, she has less freedom. She's even not allowed to write official letters. All she can do is to write those secret letters. And she pleads for help from the French king. At least he wants to prevent Elizabeth to intervene in Scotland. So maybe she thinks that if Elizabeth does not intervene in Scotland, then there is a good chance that things will go positively for her son. And she also asked the King of France to send some envoy to try to restore order. Eventually, she's quite disappointed about the results. It's very interesting to see her first reaction. that She writes, I just heard the news about my son, and that's a very powerful letter. And such an interesting reminder that most of the time what we're not seeing is the interiority, that even in a letter that has been ciphered and is secret, it is crafted and it is designed to fulfil a purpose. And this is about diplomatic skill and political skill as much as anything else. Exactly. Those are less personal letters. So in the past, I was working on, on a rubber project with Queen Enrita Maria, the wife of Charles I. And I deciphered a few letters only to find out that most of them already exist in other archives. If you don't check that, then you can make a fool of yourself. But if you read letters from Enrita Maria to Charles, they are emotional and they are genuine. So 
it's a totally different type of letter. It's more diplomatic. And also there is evidence, and John Bossi actually discussed that a little bit more, whether she fully trusted Castelnau for the more intricate plots. I think the most interesting plot was the Morton plot at the time, and it was more with the Spanish ambassador than the French ambassador. So in the letter, you will find nothing about the Morton plot. All you will find is the mention of Morton as a courier. And also when Morton is arrested in October 83 and tortured, shows she deplores that and he's suffering on her behalf. But there is a big question. She trusted him, but not for the really nasty stuff and plots. <laughs> So I would recommend to you Leander Delisle, who's recently written about Henrietta Maria, and Nadine Ackerman, who's worked on Elizabeth Stuart, the Queen of Bohemia, and has done quite a lot of work with letters and ciphers. What's fascinating to me is that we don't know who encrypted these letters. Could it have been Mary herself, or do you think it likely to be a scribe, or do we just need to do more work before we know that? Yeah, it's a different type of work because it has to do with handwriting analysis. And also, because it's in cipher, we can also write some statistics about which symbols are being used. And we have identified maybe three or four different hands. So I don't think she did the encipherment herself, but she was taught at an early age how to encrypt and decrypt letters. But I don't think she did the mechanical work. She wrote the letter for sure. This is her style, clearly. But I don't think she did the mechanical work of unciphering and deciphering. And, and there were more than one person. And this is something that we want to pursue with scholars that are more expert in handwriting analysis. And you've done those that have been digitized. Is there any hope that there are more in the Bibliothèque Nationale or elsewhere that haven't been digitized yet? Yes, yeah, so the same way that we found those, very by chance and in unexpected places, it gives us hope that we could find more. So we have come many, many online documents, but now I think that now that we know what we are looking for, we are looking for letters with those specific signs, I think it will be more practical to go to those places and then also consult other scholars, maybe archivists, to help us to find, do we have similar documents in the French National Library? And then that will be also very good news, but we don't know. You have published in your article in Cryptology long summaries of these letters, actually much like the summaries given in the 19th century calendars. Can you explain why you've taken this approach? Yes. So usually, and I have a couple of works that I did before, I prefer to do this kind of work hand in hand with historians because it's safer and then we have the context and we have the expertise. But what happened without getting into too much details, when I contacted historians, first, they were not very credulous to start with. And secondly, their schedule was really not what we had in mind, because if you sit on such material for too long and the schedule of publication is one, two, sometimes three years, we couldn't sit on that material for three years. So we decided strategically that we will not publish with an historian and we'll do our best to represent whatever we can understand. And we know that there are a lot of inaccuracies. So we are looking forward, by the way, that for someone to do a critical review of our paper and to find all the inaccuracies that will, for us, that will be very enlightening. But we know that they are. And also we are not expert in, in Middle French. So we do want some linguist or expert to see our own interpretation of the language. So we decided not to wait for historian and just to publish, to get it out to the world. Also some egoistic consideration that we didn't want anyone to preempt our publications. But the idea was just to get everything out as quick as possible and then to engage historian. So this is what we are going to do now. We made a statement in the paper and also in press releases. We are looking for historians. We are passionate of periods 
not just, okay, I'm curious to see what she wrote and thanks you for sending me the copy, but we are scholars, we are really passionate about the figures, the, the context of the period and are willing to dive in and to uh, look at each letter individually and complete the decipherment because there are always some error in the decipherment and the interpretation also especially extract the new insights. So what we hope for is uh, to see more and more papers that are based with insight based on those uh, letters and also eventually to have a team maybe to issue a book which all the letters uh, edited, annotated and interpreted, maybe translated if needed. So that's our ultimate hope. That is a wonderful opportunity for somebody listening to work with you on these letters, working towards an annotated edition. It reminds me of Boris Pasternak's phrase, when a great moment knocks on the door of your life, it's often no louder than the beating of your heart and it's very easy to miss it. So anyone who's hearing this and their heart is racing right now and thinking, maybe that could be me, you know, to get in touch with Georges. And your details are, of course, on the article that you've published in Cryptology. And that's available to all as well. Yes, it's with open access. Well, this is phenomenal stuff. I congratulate the team of you on this amazing work, this extraordinary discovery. It's so exciting and it's just thrilling in terms of the intellectual endeavour and also in terms of what you've identified for us as historians that we can really dig into. So thank you so very much, both for speaking to me and for this great labour that you have done. Thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Stuart Beckwith, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And one more thing, if you'll allow me a moment of modesty do check out my new TV series. It's called The Royals, A History of Scandals. It's on More 4. I'm probing the history of royal scandals across the centuries by talking to experts about the role that press, parliament and the public have played in generating outrage and spreading rumour. There's some corkers here. Stories you know and stories you may never have heard of. It's available online at channel4.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.